Praise God. We're going to go ahead and and continue on in the book of Colossians, and we finally made it to chapter 3. And uh, we're not going to make it all the way through chapter 3 today, but we will uh, get about halfway through. And just as a recap, as always, we're going to recap last week, and that was Paul was basically encouraging the saints to walk as children of God, right? He's like, you know what, you are you are a Christian, you've been made brand new, why don't you go ahead and walk the walk, talk the talk, walk out who you are. And then he began to warn of those who would be trying to deceive the saints over there with their empty philosophies and these, you know, they were dealing with legalism and mysticism and, and Gnosticism and every other ism that you can think of was coming in just like it happens in today's world. So you know what, you need to be ready for this, you need to be prepared for this and understand what is coming and what did he tell them? Not to be taken captive, right? And that image that he used was actually like in wartime, somebody coming in and taking them captive, binding them hand and foot and taking them away. He said, don't be taken captive by that. And then he said, you know what? I'm also going to deal with, with these people that are trying to disqualify you with what you eat, with what you, with what you celebrate, and, and all these different things. He said, you know what? Don't let people disqualify you by these earthly and man-made traditions, because as far as God's concerned, these things don't, don't do anything to make you clean. They don't do anything to make you whole. So don't let these people try to disqualify you. Because it's not man that qualifies you, but it's our Heavenly Father that qualifies you and His Son. Amen. And then we also start to talk about all those things as well. I said, you know what? They may look spiritual. I know that some people look super spiritual. And they look like they're doing all the right things. Those things may look spiritual, but they're of no value in making you clean. And it's only... What, what God did in Christ for us that makes us clean. And so this week, he's going to continue on kind of in that vein. He said, you know what? This week, I want you guys to put on the new, the new self. That's what I've sub, subtitled this one. It's this idea of putting on what you've been made, like a garment. The, the image that's being used here is, is when you take off the old self, when you put off the old self and put on the new self, is, is like putting on, uh, taking off your, your dirty clothes and throwing them to the wayside and putting on something clean and fresh. White as snow. And this was something different than what they were used to back then. Because the truth is, is that the pagan religions of the times, they really didn't say anything about morality. They didn't, basically you could come, you could worship your God, you could leave a sacrifice at the altar, you could do all these things, and then you would leave and nothing ever changed in your life. You weren't any different. You could live however you wanted to live. There was no morality as part of these religions. And matter of fact, not only could you live how you, how you want to live, no one would say or judge anything about you. Nobody would condemn you for your behavior. You could do whatever you want. And they just figured live and let live, I guess. But Paul was teaching something different. Christianity is something different. Every other religion is about maybe how you're getting right with God, about how you can become better, how you can do all these things. But Christianity is different because it's about how God made you right with Him. Christianity is different because, because we believe that there was a miracle that happened inside of you. Something changed inside of you. You're not who you used to be. And as a result, there's an expectation of change in your life. That should be visible. If you've been changed, you should be able to see that. There should be a difference in how you're living. And Paul's saying, put on the new self, put on who that you are and begin to walk that out, live how you are to live. This whole first part of this chapter is really describing the character of a Christian, the actions of a Christian, how they should live. And this is so important in today's world because there are so many people in today's world that will defend truth, they'll defend the Christian faith, and they'll do it with their words, but their life contains no evidence for it. They say, I'm a Christian. And you wouldn't know except for they said it. You look at their life and you're like, How? you look exactly like everybody else around you. Matter of fact, in some areas, you're a little bit worse. And we see this all the time. We see the Sunday Christians who show up to church on Sunday. They mark off on their little spiritual checkbox. I went to church today. And then they live their lives like heathen, just like the rest of the world, doing whatever they want. Just like those pagans used to come, they'd leave an altar, they'd come up to the altar and they'd leave a sacrifice and they'd leave, they'd leave and go back to the life that they were living. Or even worse, what about the, the holiday Christians? They just show up on Easter and Christmas. And then, then there's no other evidence of Christianity in their life at all. Titus 1.16 says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. You know, you can deny God by your works. You can say all the right things, but not live like you should be living. And basically, you're denying God. Wasn't that the problem that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were having? 
with their, with their mouth, they, protest, they, they professed God. And they said they loved Him and did all these things, but their actions said something completely different. So like I said, this week is going to be a study on our, our Christian character and what that looks like, and not just in words, but in our deeds and our actions as well. Amen? In Corinthians 3, 1 through 2, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Do you know that being raised with Christ, he says that if you have been raised with Christ, that means that you've been identified with Christ. That means that that we died, we know that we died in Him, right? By faith we died in Him, and, and our old body, our old self was put to death, and that paid the penalty for our sin. And how many you know that's a good thing? Being forgiven is a good thing. But that's not where it stopped, because we didn't just die with Him, we were raised up again with Him. We are identified with Him in His newness of life. And as a result, because we've been raised up with Him, we have the characteristics of God, His life inside of us. Galatians 2.20 says, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and He gave Himself up for me. And if that's the case, then that means that, that His ideals, that His desires, that His thoughts, that His wants, that His will should be our thoughts, our desires, our wants, and our will. And he says here, if then you have been raised. And I want you to know that word if there is not, not a conditional saying that, that if you, he's not telling these people, well, if you have, then this is you. Yeah, exactly. The, the better word that we would attribute it to today is, is since. He's saying since you have been raised. It's not, a, it's not a you got saved and you could have been raised. You, could, you might not have been. We're not really sure. We'll have to wait till the end and figure it out. No, you can, you can know when you accept Jesus Christ in your heart. That's a done deal. That's a sure thing. And that's what he's saying, basically saying, since you have been raised in him. And basically, it's a continuation of his argument that he started in Colossians 2.6. If you go back to that, he began to talk about uh, being new in Christ and being lifted up, and you are in him. And he's saying, this is, this is it. And if you are that, which you are, I've just demonstrated that, I've just argued that, I've shown that you've been saved. This is who you are. Since you've been raised, seek the things that are above. Basically, says, set your eyes on the things that are above. Set your eyes on Christ. You know that your life will go so much smoother. Your life will go so much better. You'll see so much power demonstrated in your life. You'll be so much more effective as a Christian if you keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. Did you know that it's impossible to sin if you keep your eyes on Jesus? Impossible to sin. If your eyes are focused on Jesus. If you ever think about singing or sinning, if you ever think about sinning sometimes, that temptation pops into your head, begin to sing praises to God. And as soon as you begin to sing praises to God, you can't sing praises to God and sin at the same time. It's impossible. So you have to choose one or the other. So if we keep our, our, our eyes on things that are above where Christ is seated, and that's where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. How many know what that's an indication of? That Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. It's done. It's finished. It's, it's been taken care of. There's no more work to be done. In Mark 16, 19, it says, So then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and He sat down at the right hand of God. You know when you sit down? is when the work is done. If there was still work to do, Jesus wouldn't be sitting down. He wouldn't be taking a break. He wouldn't be kicking back with his feet up waiting for somebody else to do it. When he sat down, it was done. It was finished. It was complete. His work has been completely done. That's why when we look up, we see him sitting at the right hand of Christ. And then after we get saved, our focus needs to always be up at the heavenly things. Our focus needs to be placed on and our goals need to, to revolve around the kingdom of heaven. And not the things that are here. And like we, as we looked at, we just received the offering this morning, the great thing about it is, is, is when, we, when we focus on the things of heaven, then all those things that we need are added to us. There are things here that we need. Let's face it, we need money. We've got to pay the bills. We've got we to eat. We've got to keep the electric bill on. We need those things. But our focus should never be those things. If we focus on God, those things just fall into place. 
You see, when you get saved, your, your outlook should change. And I'm not talking about just come up here and say a prayer. Anybody can, can come up here and say a prayer. I'm talking about when you've, when you've really received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your outlook changes. Your, your, your ideals change. And I remember in, in my life when I look back at all the things that used to matter to me that don't matter to me anymore. And before I got saved, everything revolved around me. You know, I, I, I remember when I was a kid and growing up, my mom would call me selfish from time to time. I used to get so offended at that because I really didn't think I was. But, I, you know, it's, it's funny. When you look back in hindsight, you look back in retrospect, and you're like, man, I kind of was. Everything was revolved around. I mean, that's actually the part of, of being born in this world is we're born broken. We're born with looking inward at ourselves. From the moment a baby is born, he begins crying because he wants something. And we are born broken. And it's Christ that makes us whole again. And all of a sudden your outlook changes. And you begin to realize that the things that matter to me don't matter to me anymore. You begin to think, you know what, now I want to be pleasing to Him. And the most amazing part about it is, is when that happens, God still makes sure you have all the stuff that you want. He'll make sure that you have the desires of your heart. It's funny, I, I think back of before then, it's interesting that I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be a good husband. I wanted to be a good worker for my employers. I wanted to be the best at everything that I ever did. I wanted to be good at everything that I ever did. But it was all about me. I wanted to be a good father so that way somebody would say, oh, he was a great father. You know, and, and puff me up a little bit. I wanted to be a good husband, so my wife would be telling all, all her friends that she's got a great husband, and they'd be jealous. I wanted to be a good worker because I wanted to get promoted, and I wanted to, to succeed in the business place. And it was all about me. I, I, there were good things to want, but it was all inward focus. But you know what happened when, when I got saved and my eyes began to be put on the things of God? Particularly now when I, when I feel like I'm, I'm, I've got so much stuff going on for God that I'm doing all these things to, to, to lead a church, and especially like right now with conferences and, and Easter and all these things. But I focus on those things and everything else falls. But God has blessed me in so many ways. And it's an amazing thing because as I put God first, as I begin to look at Him for everything, as I begin to trust Him for everything, you want to know what? I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I'm a good employer. But I do it because I'm putting him first. And, and when you begin to align yourself with, because that's the character of Jesus. Jesus is those kind of things that we all want to be. And his character begins to live out through us when our eyes are focused on him. He says, set your mind on things that are above and not things that are on earth. And it's amazing that when you do, the things that are on earth, come in line with things that are above. Amen? And he says in Colossians 3, 3-4, why, why do you want to set your eyes on things above? Why do you want to do these things? Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Why do we focus on the things above? Because who we are is dead and gone. The old man, who you used to be with all his flaws and all its failures, is dead and gone. Done away with, kicked to the curb. No longer around anymore. With his brokenness. All of those things. He has died. And he no longer lives. And what that means is, is that his failures are no longer attached to you. They've been paid. They've been dealt with. That means that his shortcomings are not your own. That means that the power of sin has been destroyed in your life. How many of you know that's good news? Amen. In Romans 6, 6, it says, We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified. By faith, went to the cross with Jesus Christ. He was nailed up there. He died. The penalty was paid. The wages of sin is death. And that man died with Jesus Christ. And it destroyed the power of sin in your life. Because it's already been paid. There is, no more, there is no more penalty for sin for the believer because it was paid for in Jesus Christ. 
And it's not just forgiveness because we've been made free. And now, now we actually have the ability not to sin. And then he goes, this goes on to say that our life, our old, our old man is dead and gone, but our life is hidden in Christ. What does that mean to be hidden in Christ? That means it's, what do we do when we hide something? Well, we're trying to keep it safe. We're trying to keep it secure. We're trying to keep it out of the way. You know, when I, when I take the, the money in my house and I hide it in my safe, it's so somebody doesn't come and steal it and take it away. It's safe. And that's what he's saying. Your life is hidden in Christ. It is safe. It is secure in Christ. In Romans 8.35, it says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or a sword? And then he answers that question a couple verses later in Romans 8.37-39. He says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors who who through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, no things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our life is hidden in Him and it can't be stolen away. There's not a safe cracker in the world that can, that can get our life out of Jesus. Matter of fact, the only way you can, you can get rid of that is if you give it back freely. But if we keep our faith in Him, our trust in Him, our life hidden in Him, then it's protected, it's secure, it's safe. And because of this, we keep our eyes on things above, on Jesus. And He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears... You see, that's the other thing, too, is that life, you know, when we say that we've been given life and life more abundant, we say that God gives us life. It's not some, it's not some supernatural spiritual substance or, or attribute or, or some sort of asset that God has that He goes, here's your share, here's your share, here's your portion, now you have life. It's Jesus. He's actually given us His life, His Son. It's Jesus is our life. It's Christ who is your life. Appears. That's why. That's why Jesus said, "Oh, I went too far." That's why Jesus said in one John five twelve, "Whoever has the Son has the life, because He is life, and whoever does not have the Son does not have life." His life is our life, and that's something that we have to grasp. We have to understand that as His life has been exchanged for ours, that means that when God looks at us, He sees Jesus. When he looks at us, he doesn't see, he sees his son. He sees the perfect life of his son. Sinless, flawless, holy, perfect. That's what he sees when he sees you. And that's what this whole thing about is. This is who you are. We have to begin to live out and express outwardly what's already been done inwardly inside of us through his life. And he says, you know what? When, when I look at you, this is what I see. I see my son. I see Jesus. I see a perfect life. And you know what? One day, you're going to see that fully too. He goes on to say, Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We're going to one day... You're going to have that full, when you finally see Jesus, you're going to have that full revelation that, wait a minute, that's who I am. That's, that I, I have that character, I have that life inside of me. We're, we're no longer going to be confused and sometimes mix up our old self with our new self. We're going to have a full revelation. But you don't have to wait to that day to begin living some of that now. You can begin to let that life out of you right now and have all those things that be expressed and manifested in your life right now. You know, my goal is to, to, to begin to keep looking at Jesus and living my life so that way when that day comes, the, the difference of who I am and who I'm going to realize I am is a small margin instead of a large margin. I, I, I want to be, oh, I was getting there, I was, I was, I was close. And that's what Paul said. Paul said, not that I have attained it yet, but I keep running the race. He was trying to get there. But, but we should look like Jesus now. Amen? So he says, 
Because of this, in Colossians 3, 5, 6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now it's true that our old self is dead, and any sins have been wiped away. We've been made perfectly clean. We've been, our, our, our sins, they were as scarlet, but now they're white as snow. It's because the mercy of God is incredible. I mean, that's, that blows my mind that, that, that God wiped away the slate, cleaned the slate, that we were made clean, and His mercy is absolutely amazing. And by His mercy, all of our sins are, are forgotten as far as the east is from the west. Do you get the, the picture that is being made when, when He said that your sins are, are forgotten like the east is to the west? It's not like when God looks at you, He sees your past sins and your past failures and He is ignoring them. He actually doesn't remember them. And He says as far as the east is to the west, and I love that, that picture because when you look at a globe, if you start at the north and you go south and you keep going, north finally you'll begin going south again. So if you're going north, you hit the top, now you're going south. And then you're going north. But when you go east and west, you're always going east. You can never stop going east if you're going that direction. Or if you're going west, you can never stop going west. There's never a switch. There's never a change. It's an infinite awayedness, if that's a word. As far as the east is from the west, isn't that picture amazing? I'm so glad he didn't say as far as the north is from the south. That's a fixed distance. But he said from the east to the west. It's infinite. There's, that's, God is not remembering our sins. That's amazing. But you know what else is amazing? That he didn't stop there. Now, if he would have stopped there, that would have been good, amen? But he didn't stop there. But in his grace, in his mercy, our sins are forgiven. But in his grace, so mercy is, is when you are, are not given something that you deserve. We deserve death, but we weren't given him. That's, that's mercy. But grace is being given something which you did not deserve. And he gave us his son. He gave us. We didn't deserve his son. We didn't deserve his life. We deserved death. And he gave that. His grace is everything that he accomplished in Jesus Christ. That's when he gave us a brand new life. We received a new life. And because of that, we become unbroken. We were repaired. Like I said earlier, we were born broken. We were born in sin and bondage. Already, there's nothing that we could do. In Romans 6.4 it says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death. That's the dying part. But he says, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Out with the old, in with the new. You know, Paul talked about this kind of conflict in the book of Romans. About the old life and the new life. And the difference being saved between being saved and not being saved. You see, as a result that we have a new life, our expectation is that there is an expectation of a new life. That it looks different. It's lived different. This is that our life looks like Jesus and not how it used to. And the great thing about the new life is that we are given the power to finally deal with all this junk, to step away from this junk. Before you got saved, there was nothing you could do. You were a slave to sin. Before, sin had power on you. But now, we have the ability to put to death all this junk. In Romans seven fifteen through 19 Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. This is, he's talking about the unsaved man. And this is the case, this is, a, this is talking about himself when he was, he was, a, he was a, a Jewish leader, he was a Pharisee, he, was, he, was, he, he, he loved God, he knew God, but there was still a struggle inside of him, because the law never fixed anything. And this is the same as true for the unbeliever as well, that there's nothing that they can do. Even if they want to do good, they can't. And he said in Romans seven fifteen through 19 I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I remember before I got saved, I wanted to be good. I wanted to not sin. And I would, I would thank God. That I would ask God for forgiveness. 
But I wasn't really saved because I hadn't received that newness of life. I didn't understand. No one had explained it to me. And I thought you were just supposed to beg God for forgiveness every night for what you've screwed up. And I wanted to do good. I wanted to live right, but I couldn't. And I kept messing up every single day, day after day after day. Because I didn't need uh, a morality meter. I didn't need, I didn't need a, a checklist of what was okay and what was okay. I needed a new life inside of me. I needed to be changed. I needed to be fixed, repaired. And Paul said, I do the very thing that I hate. I remember those days for me. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good. He says, I agree with the law. The, the law said, these are the things you have to do to be right with God. And I agree with that. And I, I want to do those things. And then in verse 17, he says, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. He's saying that there was a time that I wanted to do the right thing. You know, if Paul were to came to say this to you without, without Christ inside of you, there's nothing you could do. You can't put to death any of these, these terrible things. But with Christ inside of you, you finally have the power to do those things. You've been changed. You've been made brand new, and you're no longer a slave to sin. Romans 6.18 says, And having been set free from sin having become slaves of righteousness. I remember there was a time when I couldn't get my head wrapped around slaves of righteousness. What the heck does that mean? It doesn't even make any sense. And then I began to realize that whenever you're a slave to, it dictates everything that you do. When we were a slave to sin, it dictated everything that you did, even if you didn't want to. I remember days I didn't want to sin. I wanted to do the right thing, but I couldn't help it. I kept doing it because I was a slave to sin. But then when you become a slave to righteousness, what that means is that it dictates everything that you do. That means that righteousness is your boss. That means that it tells you what you do. It means that you can put this stuff to death because it's the one in charge. You finally have the strength and the ability of being free from the power of sin. Now we can put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, on account of these things, he says, the wrath of God has come. That's a scary statement. The reality is, is that these earthly things do bring the wrath of God. Now, we have to understand a couple of things here. One, that when you've been saved, you are free from the wrath of God. Because that wrath of God has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. But there is a wrath, wrath coming. Wrath is being stored up for certain individuals. Romans 2.5, it says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a day coming when people are going to have to give a reckoning. Now, the Scripture says that, that if you are a believer, you will, not be, <clears throat> you will not be condemned. You will not be judged. That's what some translations say. But those who are not believers have already been judged because they haven't received the free gift of life in Jesus Christ. Wrath is stored up for the unbeliever because for the believer, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God in our place. So that's something we have to understand when we're reading this. What he's not saying is that, that hey, you guys are saved, but if you keep doing this stuff, you're storing up the wrath of God. Because it says in Romans 5, 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. The stuff that we messed up, those failures, those things we've done, the wrath of God was already placed on Jesus. And for the believer, he's not saying that if you're a believer, you're storing up wrath for you. But what he is saying is, is that these are the kinds of things that were storing up wrath for you before. Why do you keep doing these things? Why do you keep messing around with this stuff? Put it to death. Be done with it. It's not who you are anymore. You've been free from this stuff. Begin to live out what has happened inside of you. Now that you're saved, put these things away. And then in Colossians 3, 7 through 8, he says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. He says, In these you too, in these you too once walked. You, you did it once. You used to. This is a, a past tense word. He says, These are the things that you used to do before you were saved. 
You used to have anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. These things you used to do, it, but put them away. Be done with them. That's what you used to do. Basically saying, knock it off. The first round was primarily sexual sin. And sexual sin is its own kind of beast because the Scripture says that that kind of sin is a sin against your own body. That's all these guys right here. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Matter of fact, he told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6.18 to flee from sexual immorality. He says every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. What does that mean? Well, if you guys understand that from the beginning, when man and woman came together, they became one flesh. Sexual stuff is spiritual. You know, when we sin and, and the non-sexual stuff, it's outside the body. But when you sex, or sin sexually, or <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's against your own body because there's a spiritual element to it. And that's what the issue is there. And then now he's dealing with, with these attitudes basically towards others. Right? And what's, what's anger? Anger is, what it's referring to here is this habitual attitude of anger towards others. Just always being angry at everybody. Wrath. Wrath is sudden outbursts of anger. Malice is basically an attitude of ill will towards somebody. Sometimes you're just angry at people, but sometimes you want them to be harmed. When, they, when good things happen to them, you get upset. And when bad things happen to them, you, you get all excited. That's, that's malice. And then slander is finally tearing people down with your words, talking about them behind their back, spreading rumors, basically gossiping about people. He says, you used to do these things, these things, and these things here, you used to do, stop doing them. That's, who you once, that's what you once did. And then finally, he deals with, with obscene talk from your mouth. This is basically filthy or corrupt talk. This is basically, as a Christian, crude and sexual humor or talk shouldn't be part of your vocabulary. That, 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 that kind of stuff shouldn't be. That's not in the character of a Christian. I mean, can, can any of you right now imagine Jesus standing around a water cooler telling those kind of jokes? Yeah, if he's not doing it, you shouldn't be doing it either. He says, you know what? This is what you used to do. But now there's a difference. There's a change inside of you. Then he goes on to say in Colossians 3, 9 through 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Lying is the realm of the enemy. Eight, or John eight forty four says that you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in, in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lies is the realm of the enemy. He said, you know what? Seeing that you have put off the old self, stop doing that. That's who you were, not who you are now. Are you seeing a theme in all these things? This is who you were, not who you are now. Put off the old self, put on the new self. The old self should look nothing like the new self. And the truth is, lying is destructive. One of the most destructive things in this world. I believe, because it destroys relationships. It destroys trust. Lying can, can completely destroy an entire congregation and break it apart. It can destroy families and rip them apart. It can destroy marriages and rip them apart. There was once a little girl that came up to her mom and she said, Mom, which is worse, lying or stealing? And the mom thought about it for a while. She's like, wow, they're both sins. I'm not, I'm not really sure which is worse, lying or stealing. And the little girl finally came back up to her a couple hours later. She goes, mom, I've thought about it. And I think that lying is worse. Because if you steal something, you can always give it back. Or if you, if you steal somebody's food and you eat it, you can always buy them more food. But a lie is forever. It's hard to take those back. We can't continue on doing the same things that we used to do and expect God to come down and physically put a stop to it. He can't, we can't expect God to come down and, and make us physically stop from behaving contrary 
to his will and his, his word are contrary to the work that he's done in our lives. That's, that's our responsibility. We have to put off the old self and put on the new self. He has called us to live holy lives. But he has also given us the power to live what he's called us to do. In his son, that new life inside of you. And putting off the old and putting on the new is that, is that image of taking off the old dirty clothes and putting on something fresh and clean and, and brand new. And we've all seen that people all around the world wear different uniforms. You know a soldier because they're in BDUs. You know a police officer because they're in police officer's uniform. You know basketball players because they're in basketball uniform. You should know Christians by the garments that they're wearing as well, which is demonstrated in our actions. You've all heard it said, dress for success. And I think that's so true for the Christian as well. Put on the new self. And the great news is, is that after we put on the new self, it's being, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of His Creator, it's getting better as we walk out our walk with God. Because as we grow in knowledge of Him, we have a greater revelation of who we are in Him. And as we have a greater revelation of who we are as Him, as we spend time in His Word, as we read about Him, as we read about what He's accomplished in us, it becomes easier and easier to walk that out in our life. And in Colossians 3.11, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So he goes on, he says, Here there is... There's not Greek and Jew. Where is here? He's talking about in Christ. In Christ, there is no difference. We're all the same. He said the same thing to the Galatian church. In 3.28, Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what you're doing now. In Christ, we are all equal. In Christ, we are all made equally free. We are all equally forgiven. And we all equally have the strength to live out the life that God has called us to do in His Son. In Romans 2.11, it says, For God shows no partiality. And I tell you what, if God doesn't show any partiality, I don't think that we should either. There's no distinction. You're not a better Christian because you were a Jew first, or you're not a better Christian because you were a Gentile. You're not a better Christian for any of these things. There's no difference in God's eyes. We are all equal in regards to salvation. And distinctions between groups of people gets us in all kinds of problems. That'll get you in a mess quicker than anything you can think of. Particularly when you begin to view one group better than the other. How many of you guys have heard stories about pastors that will dress up as bums and, and come to their own church and, and then when it's all said and done, they'll go up in front of the church and like, you know what, I just came in here dressed like this and not a one of you said hi to me. Not a one of you did any of these things. And you begin to realize that there was a distinction. People were being treated differently. But the reality is when we look at people, all we should see is Jesus. Like I said earlier, when God looks at people, He sees Jesus. When we look at people, we should see Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.2 2 says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is Paul writing to the, to the Corinthian church. And let me tell you, they were messed up. They, they, they were all in all kinds of trouble. There was, there was the son, there was a son sleeping with their wives or husbands sleeping with their... All kinds of weird stuff going on. I believe it was a son took his father's wife. And they were messed up. But God says, you know what, I, I refuse to see you. Or Paul said, I refuse to see you except Christ in you. And that's how we should see each other as well. Matter of fact, if you really want to draw distinctions, there's actually only one biblical way to draw distinctions. In Philippians 2, 3 it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. If you want to draw distinctions, that's the only one you can, you can legitimately draw according to the Bible, and that's that others are considered more valuable, that you would consider others more valuable than yourself. Amen? 
Colossians 3, 12-13, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. He says, put on then as God's chosen. You know, you're chosen by God. How awesome is that? Take a minute to just sit back and, and soak that in for a second. God chose you. God, the creator of all the universe, higher than anything you can imagine, the name above all names, king above all kings, lord above all lords, chose you. That's amazing. And he said that we are holy and beloved. Holy means that we are set apart. Not that he chose us, he set us apart, and we're loved by him. And then we see it again, put on then. Like a garment. like It's a choice that we get to make. And he says, put on these things. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And these are qualities that have been given to you that you can put on like a garment. We have the option to put them on. You can say, Pastor, I'm not any of these things. How can I put them on? I'm not, I'm not these things. That's not in my character. Well, let, me, let me ask you this. If I said that everybody next Sunday had to wear a red shirt to church. And you said, but I don't have any red shirts. If somebody gave you a red shirt, could you put it on? It's the same thing here. You may not have these things, but they've been given to you as a garment in Christ. So they may not be yours before, but they are now. Put it on. It says, then we need to go on and, and bear. Bear with one another. That means that, you know that we're a family? In the church, that we're all a family. That means we've got to put up with one another. That means sometimes people do stuff that we may not like, but you know what? We love them anyway. We support them anyway. He says, bear with one another. And if anyone has to complain against one another, forgive each other. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We don't forgive because somebody might deserve it or might need it. We forgive because we've been forgiven. Because we certainly didn't deserve it, right? But we were forgiven anyway. Matter of fact, I believe that when we begin to hold that unforgiveness inside of us, it's because we don't have a real revelation of what we've been forgiven of. If, if, you, if you had a revelation of how much that you've been forgiven of, it would be a whole lot easier to forgive others. Amen? And then he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know, there's a reason why love is so important. There's actually a couple reasons. One, it's because it, it drove God to do incredible things for us. It was God's love for us that drove Him to send His Son to this earth to give up His life so that we could be made whole. And His love for us is incomprehensible. I mean, I, I can't even comprehend that vast amount of love. And it's inextinguishable and it's inexhaustible. It can't be put out. And it can't run out. Another reason why love is important is it's the greatest commandment. Matthew 22-36 says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments defend all the law and the prophets. The entire law is summed up in love. You know, if you, if you wanted to abide by the law, all you had to do was love God and love your neighbor, and you would meet every law in the book. And let me tell you, even though that we're not bound by the law, there's a reason why God wrote those laws down, because that's the expected character of a Christian. That's the expected character people should have. That's the change that took place inside of you. See, the Jews had the, the law, and this is what they were expected to do, but they couldn't because they hadn't been made new yet. But now we've been made new, and we can actually f- live up to that. How good is that? We can finally be what God called us to be, live the life that God called us to live because He's given us the power to do so. And His character doesn't change. His expectation doesn't change. Next Love is important because it covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8, above all, keeping love, loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That means that 
when one of us sins against one another, oh, we wouldn't do that in this church, Pastor. But in other churches, they have to love one another to, to, to make up for that. That's how you forgive somebody if you love them. The truth is, is that sometimes, as, especially as a family, anybody ever butted head with your brother or your sister? Oh, yeah. yeah, you know what? It happens in the church, too. Sometimes we're going to butt heads. But if we realize that we love one another, then we forgive one another. We, we work through it. We get past it. That's why love covers a multitude of sins. Because we can continue loving and forgiving one another. And then finally, love defines us as Christians. John 13.35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I mean, that should be our defining characteristic. Love defines who we are. And he says, above all, put on these things. Put on love. And you guys all know the love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, love allows us to be a family in spite of all of our flaws, in spite of all of our hiccups. Amen? Amen. It says it binds everything together in perfect harmony. And in Colossians 3.15 it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Philippians 4.7 says, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And ruling or guarding your hearts Letting that, that peace rule or guard your heart is basically letting that guide your will and emotions. That's how you let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And this peace is only obtained through Jesus Christ. And it's a peace in spite of our circumstances. It's a peace, a peace in spite of what's going on. It's a peace that, that is a result of complete and utter surrender and trust in God. And we begin this trust the moment that we receive Jesus and we begin to receive that peace. And it's like a child that feels safe the moment that a father or a mother walks in the room, in the dark room. You ever had a kid that's scared of the dark? You don't necessarily have to turn the light in. You just need to go in there and hold them. Or it's like the, it's like the, the, the kid who's in a busy store and as long as they're holding their mom's hand, they're not afraid of getting lost in the hustle and bustle. But as soon as they become disconnected, they're afraid. And in both of those circumstances, the, the circumstance doesn't matter. The darkness can stay. The busy crowd can still be there. But as long as their, their mother or their father is with them, then they're comforted. They feel safe. They have peace. And we have the same thing with God. It's in spite of our circumstance, in spite of what's going on. The peace of God is not a result of how things are on your life. It's a result of God in your life. Amen? And then he goes on to say, and be thankful. And it's the same thing. We're not thankful for the situations in our life. We're thankful in spite of the situations in our life because of what Christ is accomplishing in each and every one of us. In Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Letting the word of, of Christ dwell in us richly means that we actually have to let His word enter into our lives. This means spending time in the word, and this, this means renewing our mind. Amen? Then he goes on to say that we need to let His word dwell in us richly. Then he says that we need to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. That means we need to teach one another the Word of God, Christ's Word. We need to, to encourage each other with the Word of God. And we need to admonish one another. But there's a catch with that one. Because admonish somebody means to, to, to correct them or to reprimand them. But there's a catch there because it says, in what? In all wisdom. That doesn't give you carte blanche to correct everybody you see with the Bible. We don't need to walk around with a Bible in our hand beating people over the head with it. That's not effective. But if somebody has given you permission to speak in your life, then you can correct them. You can encourage them. You can lift them up. 
And I would say to you that it's more often effective to remind people of who they are instead of telling them what they're doing is wrong. You know, when somebody is, is dealing with sin, it's much more effective. Instead of pointing out to the sin saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing that, to say, hey, in Christ, you are free from that. The same result, the same correction, but a different approach. Amen? And then he says that we should be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We must worship. And I think as a church, right now we're being challenged and we're seeing a shift in our worship in the morning to begin to worship freely, to begin to worship more passionately, to let the Holy Spirit move among us. To get rid of all those worries and those cares. And, you know, if I, if I yell out hallelujah or Jesus or something, what's somebody going to say? Are we going to feel weird or awkward? But rather, instead, we need to worship in spirit and in truth. So we need to be doing these things. And we do it with thankfulness in our heart. And finally, we'll end here. Sorry, I'm going a little long. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See, when we do stuff in the name of Jesus, that means doing stuff as Him. As His representative and what we do reflects on him that's you know that's why you pray in the name of jesus that means that you're going to god in the authority in the image of jesus you are his representative to god we are coming to god as his son we are ambassadors of christ in this world as well and what we do reflects on him Therefore, whatever we do should look like Him. Amen? It's just like when a police officer goes out in their uniform and they, they act in a way that's not befitting to the uniform. They're reprimanded because they're not representing the department that they're from. Or when a soldier goes out and they act a fool, they're reprimanded for conduct unbecoming of a soldier. All of our conduct should be coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? It should look like Him. Because the truth is, we are the light to this world. And we are a, a city on a hill. We're a lamp on a lampstand. People see us. They see Jesus. But the problem is, they attribute to Jesus however we're acting. So when we represent Jesus well and look like Him, then people see the real Jesus in us, in our love, in our actions, and how we treat one another, how we treat them. But the fact is, the moment that you say you're a Christian and you act a fool, now they're also attributing those qualities to Jesus. And we need to make sure that's, that's important that we're not doing those things. We need to live the life that we've been given and walk out Jesus in our life. So my challenge to us is let's put on Jesus and let's walk the walk and let's talk the talk. Amen?